Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. We are here back in our studio. I think this is our second or third episode in here now. We were live for the episode that will hopefully be dropping sometime this week, the week before this one. Um, Peter's working on that. We had six feeds in a live setting with volume uh, coming out of that, so he's going to have to tinker with that a little bit. But we uh, are recording today with a guest, a guest who has been on before, a colleague of ours here on the third floor. Um, Are we G-Wing? I think we're G-Wing. Oh, I thought you said Jewing, and I'm like, I don't, I don't know if that is that inappropriate or is it appropriate? I don't <laughs> even know. Is that a verb? I don't no, even the, know. The G wing, the formal former girls' wing of the um, campus building. Uh, that colleague being Professor Sheena Finnegan. And Sheena, why don't you just maybe refresh for our listeners a little bit? We should have looked up. I'm guessing Mike, you didn't, and I know I didn't. What episode number? Sheena's previous episode was. No, but it was early on. Peter will put it in the show notes if he listens to it before he produces it. Um, But Sheena, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I am an historian and I study Roman history. And I am studying right now like Roman family history, but this is not what we'll be talking about today. Um, I teach at WLC, obviously, with Wade and Mike. I don't know what else. Is that fine? You're finishing up your PhD right now at right. UW-Madison. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the dissertation on? On Roman motherhood. Roman motherhood. So that, that'll be another episode we'll have to do. We touched on that a little bit when you were on mm-hmm. previously. Um, so we will be talking today, and though. Then, can, I, can I follow up on that a little bit? To do this and is, that a, is there a gap in literature on family in general, but motherhood, I mean... I'm guessing she chose to do his dissertation on something where there's right, well, right, but like generally over. a gap where there's just like nothing out there, or you really have to narrow in to find something that is uh, hasn't been written on before. Yeah, so the Roman family's been written on um, probably for about the last forty years or so, and there has been a fair amount of of scholarship on it. Uh, motherhood, there's been less. And on all of it, the emphasis is on elite people. So, and especially if you're talking about it from a historical rather than archaeological perspective, it's super elite. You know, you're talking about the um, imperial people and senatorial members um, in the republic. So, what I'm doing is non-elite, and there is very, very little done mm-hmm. on non-elite mothers and. Um, even though there's a little bit more done on families and children and that sort of thing, it's still not not much. How's writing going? Staying disciplined? Those were fun days. Mostly, it's it's going pretty well. Should you be writing right now instead of dinking around with us? I definitely should be. <laughs> mm-hmm. But this is fun. Well, good. Well, we're going to be getting to today specifically with Rome, uh, kind of the transition from republic to dictatorship. Um, some of the shifts, uh, I'm guessing we may see some parallels in our own day, um, as people are wanting to do whenever they do Greco-Roman history. Um, but that shift, uh, especially focusing on Julius Caesar then, uh, just some reminders at the beginning, we are part of the 1517 Podcast Network. Um, you can check out the other podcasts on that network at the 1517 website. Uh, this is where we need Peter, 1517.org, I believe. 
uh, Virtue in the Wasteland has sadly now come to an end, but Dan and Jeff are both exploring new projects, so we'll be looking forward to that. But there still are 10 other podcasts. There's a lot of other podcasts for you to check out, um, you know, see what you like, but make sure you always come back to us. That's priority number one. Um, also, if you don't yet, we really appreciate it. If you would subscribe, that does help with us uh, increasing the conversation, extending the conversation, and kind of getting a sense for what we have out there as far as an active audience. Um, iTunes rating reviews have been doing great. We're well over 100 now. But if you haven't yet, we do appreciate if you can rate and review us as well on iTunes. I know Ben doesn't like when we're all five stars. He says that doesn't look convincing or something. I don't know his argument, but I'm going to go ahead and say uh, feel free to give us five stars. I find five stars to be a, a nice pat on the back. Very. Be honest. Affirming. If we're a three-star, give us a three-star. No, it's give fine. us five. I look at anything less than five as kind of offensive. Failure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, rate a review as you see fit. Um, I guess with all that being said, Mike, how about you take us uh, into the free-for-all with our disclaimer? This show doesn't speak for our churches, our church bodies, or our employers. To be honest, much of the time it probably doesn't speak for us. We will be thinking out loud a lot. So approach what you hear with a healthy skepticism, because well as a responsible resident of planet Earth, that's probably what you should generally do with almost everything. If you find yourself getting too worked up, tune out, look around, and realize you were just listening to a podcast. That's right, a podcast. So go live free, friends, and don't let us get in the way. Hello and welcome back. We're here for our main topic now before we get into, um, excuse me, not the main topic, we're here for the free-for-all. The main topic will be um, Julius Caesar and uh, the move out of the Republic into, uh, well, that part of history right there that Sheena is an expert in. But before <laughs> then, we're going to do something that um, Wade's an expert in, and that's thinking about things that he has right now and that people in the past don't have and what he's grateful for that he has right now that specifically people in the Roman Empire did not have. So, Wade, we'll kick it to you first. What well, is, just parameters maybe. Is this okay. – um, so I can see this going a few ways. Is this the one thing we would want to keep that they have that we don't or just the one thing we're really glad we have that they didn't? I think you can do whatever you want. So what comes to mind when you say – I have it better than the well, Romans. Well, the first that comes to mind is indoor plumbing. I mean, they had mm-hmm. that to some extent, but, um, you know, I really, I like indoor, but I feel like that's not. You know, and relatively speaking, I, you know, as a, as a Roman, wouldn't you have been like, this is the life, you know I mean? You don't know. I mean, you're not, you would not have missed indoor plumbing the way we have it because you wouldn't have known about it. And so you probably would have been satisfied. So with, you're saying the thing that. The Romans wish they would have. No, what I'm just saying is... Um, How about we do... No, we should take it that way. Okay. What Roman... So if it, if a Roman from the time of Caesar came today to 2019 America, and let's make it America now, necessarily specifically Wisconsin, what they would... Uh, we're the Romans, right? So, mm-hmm. But we still have our personalities. Okay. So it's not like a random Roman, we have to guess. But we'd probably like um, be most smitten with enjoy most today okay i like it 
Okay. All right. So what would... It changes my answer a little bit. Would you got anything in your head yet? I think I would be fascinated with Velcro. I mean, if there's one invention that's like the most practical and awesome, it's got to be Velcro. You know, I mean, how many times I can imagine like you're, you're a Roman mother and you just want to, you just want to have their sandals stay tied or they want to hang something on the, on the wall. And then there's this thing called Velcro. Velcro. You can stuff stuff on Velcro. Teachers do it all the time. I don't believe that. Yeah. The 3M hooks. They have like the picture ones that are Velcro. Yeah. One sticks Ah. to the wall and the other sticks to the back of the picture. Did you guys ever have, so when you were younger, um, like it, they'd have like a, um, oh, what do you call those things where your school would have like, you'd have a big party at your school, like you'd stay all night or like a. A lock-in? Lock-in, yeah. And you, you ever do where they had like the Velcro wall and you had to jump up against that with the Velcro suit? I'm, I'm, I never, I've seen that. I never did it, but I think that okay. would be, yeah. Or like they'd have the sumo. You Did you ever do the sumo wrestler outfits? I never, yeah, I never went to a lock-in. Going, but. Oh, man, you missed out. Um, okay, so this can be. But don't a, you think like a regular Roman soldier walking down and be like, man, I could have used that Velcro thing. <laughs> yeah, and so, I mean, if we're talking something like that they wouldn't want to make like a permanent part of their life, like it's not a game changer for life. <clears throat> okay. Then I'm going to, I feel like I, I can't go with Wi-Fi or internet because I, I think that would take a while to appreciate. You know, you have to kind of ease into that. It was, I mean, I still remember arguing with Gunther that his, you know, the laptop and Google was a flash in the pan. <laughs> so I'm going to go with. Yeah, uh, they, may be, they may be scared of that as much as intrigued by that, right? Like, I, think I so. don't want to deal with that. Yeah, so good. That's that's a good point. You know what I think they would like? Um, Facebook. Because I think that would really play into, like, the, the different family lines, and you have to have your cultivate your reputation. But I'm not going to go with I'm going to go with, uh, because we were talking pizza before, and uh, Mike was asking when they would have got tomatoes, and you said they came from Argentina, and I still don't know that I believe. I'm pretty that. sure that they're, those are South American things that were brought back. So we're talking. Sounds like a Ben fact. No, I'm I'm pretty sure that tomatoes. So so the pizza that we know today was not made by, was not was not appreciated by the Caesars. Well, if we're going with a food thing, I would go with a stuffed crust pizza. I feel like that's just something that that's 2019 America like. <laughs> That's something that we came up with that I think would be, if we're talking, you're, you just show up, we just met this guy or Gail or girl or Gail sounds dismissive, um, and we're going to take them somewhere. I feel like um, stuffed crust pizza and like a Chuck E. Cheese type or like some, it has to be the right setting would be cool. Um, if we're talking everyday use, uh, I feel like heat when I, I mean, I don't think, does it get that cold in Rome? I don't think it. Sure. Like it real. It snows. Co- so, I mean, indoor heating would be nice too, but they'd have fire. They had that. Yeah. So they had ways to do that. I feel like a lot of the stuff you'd throw it at them and it would seem cool, but not. Uh, so I would say food wise, I'd go with like a stuffed crust pizza. Um, if we're going like straight, just cool technology stuff we have. Maybe a microwave? 
I think that'd be a big thing, but I don't know that they would like it. I, I'm guessing they'd probably be like, "We'll take the penicillin or something." Because like our roads that. aren't if they, better. If they could take, yeah, the right. roads are. If they could take one thing back. I bet it'd be penicillin. Yeah, I don't even really know like what that. penicillin does. I just know it was a really important. Yeah, it cures a it's lot. An antibiotic of, or something, right? Yeah. That's like that basis for a lot of the medicines that keep us alive. What about washing hands? I think they like were, antibiotics. Yeah, I think they washed their hands though. Yeah, but they they had a, a what do you call the um, parasites like real bad. So I feel like although that was the food, wasn't it? It was in food and water and everywhere. I was kind of afraid that I was going to turn this morbid because that's what I was going to start talking about was <laughs> uh, no morbid's good. Know, general hygiene and the ability to know that something's not going to pop out of your foot someday yeah you know something gross like that yeah. Maybe. i would not react well that is like a nightmare too like anything like worm parasite related i just can't imagine like that being a normal part of life and there's still parts of the world where it is that yeah i don't like any creatures inside me and i know there are like like what do you call that stuff you're supposed to have in your stomach uh probiotics or something bacteria like good bacteria or whatever like i don't even like having that stuff in there i that bothers me. You know, it's probably refrigeration. It was the answer. I mean, that sol- that helps solve a lot of these problems too. Like, but a lot of their like, food didn't have to be refrigerated. I feel. But like. it could be now and then. Anyway, we should let maybe the expert on Rome talk about um, what. What do you think they would be enamored by? So first of all, I keep feeling a little uncomfortable by expert because I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm not yet. But you're the expert um, in this room, right? <laughs> But then I was I really was thinking about parasites and, and hygiene and that generally knowing kind of what would make you sick because one of the things that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about lately is um, morbidity because of being a mom and being a mom means uh, that you can get pretty sick right uh. um, right away and then even your kids are probably likely to be very sick and a, a lot of them will die very young totally different from right now so having those sort of protective layers in to take away some of that fear of death and illness seems to me like that would be a thing that somebody would want to walk away with if they could so I think this would be interesting. Let's say, so this, this hypothetical Roman comes, and we bring them into our studio, and we have three things on the table. We have Velcro, Velcro. stuffed crust pizza, and, you know, whatever health-related stuff. Don't, do, we have to, do we have a chance to explain them? or I think you even get to explain them. Okay. I think if I were the Roman, <laughs> I'd be the terrible ambassador sent forward. I think I would go Velcro or stuff crust, stuff crust pizza. Yeah. Simply because they would catch my attention, and I, it'd be the wrong. I mean, clearly not having worms and dying young would be the way to go. But depends uh, if you're going back. Am I staying here or going back to help people? Like if I have the choice to go back. No, and I think help you have people, to go back. You're just like here for a week. Okay. So then the the. The right thing to do is to take the knowledge back of that, but right. nobody knows that you had these options. But that's the three options we give so. them. I bet the pizza really is <laughs> just, pizza. it's not really fair because the, the differences in them are, you know, the one's pizza is immediate, right? right? You feel really good when you're eating a slice of pizza. Velcro, cool. I can figure out how to mm. use it. Other stuff, complicated, long-term. Who knows if I really want that or not? 
I don't know. Yeah. I, I do like think I know win. what they'd be disappointed in. And I think our roads are would probably, they'd be like, it's 2,000 years later and the roads are this bad. I mean, Wisconsin's yeah. kind of worse in the nation since we spent a few decades not taking care of the roads. Yeah. Um, probably buildings aren't very much more impressive as far as like, I mean, the state capital, but if they were to come to Milwaukee, I don't know. You know, I feel like clothes would probably just look weird. Um, yeah. No, I think I think that they would probably take the pizza. Well, I know you would take the pizza. Oh, I would take the pizza. You would take out. the pizza. And then I would play with the Velcro. And then play with the Velcro. I, don't, I think it, it would take a while for them to appreciate the Internet. I think they'd be scared of it. So they would be like, I don't want to deal with that. That's probably true. I think you're right. The, uh, and the more I think about it, Velcro, mm, you know, they're like, okay, that's cool. But unless they see it in action <laughs> and have a bunch of it, they probably would say, I'm not going to take that back. So it really is down to the knowledge of hygiene and pizza. And I've heard that pizza is so addictive, it's like, like cocaine addictive. You know what I think I would do? Now this is... This is what I would do with our Roman guest. I would serve... Get them hooked on pizza? No, I would serve stuffed crust pizza. And you know what I would really like to watch with them? Is Gladiator. Because I think I would appreciate their take on, you know, the movie Gladiator. Probably, you know, top five movie of all time. Um, like To the, see if they would enjoy it. I mean, obviously, they would probably think, like, oh, this isn't what it was like. But... Right. I, I wonder if it would resonate with them. I think it is. I think it's kind of a timeless story. Do you think they would be like, yeah, that the timeless story too? But also, do you think they would be like, this is tamed down, like it was, it was a lot bloodier than that, or do you think that was sensationalized? What do you think they would fall on? And what do you think, Sheena? I think the latter, maybe. I think they wouldn't like, they wouldn't, like as Americans, we like the whole like slave gladiator, upri- gladiator uprising idea. Right. I don't think they would, they would like that. Right. And I'm guessing they wouldn't like democracy like we have it at all. I guess it depends on who you're talking to though, right? Like right. Pompey wouldn't like democracy. Yeah, if we're just grabbing a guy off the street. All right, I feel like I could take this a lot of ways, but we probably should get to the main topic since on. Caleb told us we got to try to start sticking to an hour and not going on it. All right, we'll, we'll be back with some serious talk. All right. brings us to our main topic. Uh, we had been talking to Sheena a while back about some possible topics for shows, and one thing she had mentioned was a lecture she had done um, recently on the an exploration of the path to dictatorship and empire in Rome. And uh, Sheena, having read through the, the notes you gave us, I'm just going to kind of quickly summarize um, some of the stuff, and then I'm going to throw it to you and let you go where you want to go with it. But um, Sheena has, and hopefully we can get a little bit of kind of the overview leading up to Caesar coming to power, background on Caesar himself, so maybe we can start with that. But then four factors that really contributed 
um, to the shift from the republic to a dictatorship and then empire, um, you know, I think probably now I my minor field was late antiquity. So I, I kind of like when everything's falling apart. It was like modern Germany, Holocaust studies and late <laughs> antiquity and then reformation. So I kind of like the um, going to hell in a handbasket periods. But um, as we kind of um, look at this, you give four factors that you think especially contributed to the shift to dictatorship and then empire. And the first would be precedents that were already there to build on. The second would be economic uncertainty, or uh, I think you bring up also um, kind of fiscal issues that the government was having. Third, extreme political polarization in Rome, and then finally, personality. And so I think if we can kind of break it up that way as we go through things, but maybe first, if you could just run us through, um, assuming our listeners obviously have heard of Julius Caesar, um, speaking of pizza, they've heard of Little Caesars for sure. Um, they've probably heard that title Caesar used in a variety of ways. Um, and we know that title's been important throughout history, whether it be German Kaisers, um, even if we um, think of ideas of empire as they become very important in the West. But maybe first, uh, Julius Caesar himself, a little bit on his background and how he's going to end up becoming a power player. Sure. So Julius Caesar was a member of um, the Julii family, which was one of the more established families in Rome, but not one of the most influential. And um, he claimed uh, ancestry to the goddess Venus, who was the mother of Aeneas, the founder, mythical founder of Rome. Um, so he had uh, you know, a lot of pedigree. But as I said, his family didn't have a lot of influence and um, he then sort of decided, it seems, to make a name for himself when he became governor uh, uh, of Gaul, which is modern day like Germany and France, basically. And he conquered that entire region uh, fairly quickly. And once he had done all of that, uh, Rome was already in the middle of a downward spiral. And it seems that he was pretty aware of it and was ready to, to take advantage of it when he could. So there's a lot of other context that I, I could give. I think maybe one of the... When you say downward spiral, you mean politically at home or as, as a kind of burgeoning empire in general? Um, both. So politically at home, then, so this is like the, the general context of what I am going to be, or I did argue in this lecture, which was if you were to go back about... Um, let's see, 180 80 to 100 years before Julius Caesar became dictator, there were already some pretty clear signs that Rome, the Roman Republic, was not in a good space. People were being, political people were being murdered in the city along with their followers. Uh, there were wars in Italy, uh, which... Sometimes people sort of classify as civil war, but a lot of times uh, people will say, no, it's not quite civil war because these are Latin people versus other Italian people. And then uh, right after Julius Caesar uh, decides that he's going to really you know, begin to make a name for himself, a civil war begins between him and two other men. And eventually, right, that civil war will end in the, in the death um, at some point of both of the other two. And then Julius Caesar will take this title dictator, which technically was no longer 
part of the Constitution, the, the title uh, and the office had been eliminated. And you explained that the title dictatorship, that, like there could be, there is a provision, correct me if I'm wrong, a provision that somebody could be a dictator for um, a specific part of time. Was this kind of equated to martial law? Was it something different? Um, and explain how that um, is now different than what uh, Julius Caesar is going to sure. going to take for himself. Mm-hmm. So um, the famous story that that sort of gives you the context for the dictatorship is the story of Cincinnatus, who is a senator, and he's out in his farm field, and uh, the Romans are warring, and he uh, is just doing his thing, plowing away, and a, a, a messenger from the Senate comes to him and says, Cincinnatus, we need you to. M- be the general. We need you to take control of this war, end it. Uh, and Cincinnatus famously just puts down his plow, walks out of his field, goes and um, acts as the general in this war. And a couple weeks later, when it's all said and done, comes back, picks up his plow, and, and gets back to work. So the idea is that a dictator is someone who will take control of a military situation and accomplish whatever the immediate goal is that the Senate sets for that person and then relinquishes that power and returns to whatever job they were doing before. And of course, ideally, this is agriculture. And this kind of becomes an ideal even in the American setting early on, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. that the idea of someone's going to take the call to service, military service, political service, um, but then peacefully return home to, to, to carry out their task. And I'm, I'm guessing the city of Cincinnati probably yes. is, is named for Cincinnati. Is named yep. for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have this precedent of Cincinnati, but then we have the idea of dictatorship, I believe you note, is then outlawed later. So it, it's something that had been right. abandoned as a concept that will be brought back mm-hmm. by Caesar. Um we, we, we hear dictator, and I think most of our listeners are probably going to think Hitler, Stalin, um, Saddam Hussein, uh, maybe a little bit of the root, right? Dictatus would just be the one who says stuff, or right, what he says goes. Is that mm-hmm. fair? Um, do you think it would be fair to equate that office as it, so Cincinnati, as he originally holds it, his role, um, this is... How would you contrast that, at, or would you contrast it at all with how we use the word dictator today? Okay, um, so a couple of things. So one is I would say that in a certain way there are parallels because it's really about authoritative rule, right? That this person says something and everybody is compelled to do what this person says. And certainly that's sort of the attitude of modern-day dictators. On the other hand, um, in the Roman period, dictator was not a an inherently negative term. It was, in fact, usually, at least in the early period, right, it was quite positive that Cincinnati decided to take this role as dictator. But eventually, it develops a bit of a negative connotation. And um, even though that connotation developed, it never became, I think, totally negative until... Uh, Julius Caesar, right? It wasn't ever the space where you you never wanted anyone to have taken that role or you automatically have this this sort of negative idea of the person. And just one note that 
the dictatorship or maybe two. So one, the dictatorship was never supposed to be longer than six months. That was the, the limit. And then two, um, it had been eliminated at the end of um, one of the, the Punic Wars in, in 202 BC, so a long time. In between 202 BC and Julius Caesar, there had been someone who had taken the title dictator for himself, uh, and that was a man named Sulla. And he held it for two years, and he voluntarily relinquished it. And so he sort of keeps up the facade anyway of, um, you know, taking control only as needed, reforming, and then returning back. And then I guess connected to that, maybe if you could just briefly hit on, um, you know, this is meant to be a temporary thing. There is meant to be a norm that's returned to. And so we use that word republic, and I think republic is also a word that has modern, modern connotations. Mm-hmm. Um, the people may fairly or unfairly make comparisons with um, republic is a big term, for instance, in French history. Um, in our own history, that word republic gets thrown around. We have a party right, that's called the Republicans. Um, what do we mean when we're, you, you mentioned he came from an important family, and I think that's something for people to, important for people to understand when we're talking about a republic too. What what do the Romans mean by a republic, and what might a uh, a modern listener benefit from keeping in mind they don't mean as well? Sure. So the Romans never considered the republic to be a democratic republic. Uh, at least the Roman leaders didn't, and they never wanted a democratic republic. It was organized by wealth and by power, so the very highest offices could only be held by people with excessive wealth in in many contexts, or at least that would be the way they were perceived, right? And then there were um, several classes of people below, and then the lowest class of people couldn't hold public office at all, and then there were intermediate classes that could hold only certain kinds of public office or could only get into public office through military service rather than um, campaigning and then being elected into office. And whenever a decision was made by the Republic, so you have your um, votes, right, that would take place, and those votes would be cast by um, a group of people, never an individual, and there were three sort of governing bodies, uh, four if you count the Senate, but the Senate never actually technically governed. And these governing bodies had different ways of voting and different ways of organizing, but the main one, um, you've probably heard of the term uh, centuria, uh, sorry, a century, right, which is based on this idea that each of these groups is 100 people. That's not at all true. Um, the groups were again, divided by wealth. So your very richest were actually in smaller groups than your very poor. And each of those groups got one vote and they always voted in order of wealth. So the richest people first, the poorest people last. Usually the, the vote never even made it down to the poor people because it was a straight majority. And there were only um, basically four votes um, of this. There's sort of a dividing line between, you know, the wealthy and the not wealthy. Uh, And below this divisive line, there were only four tribes or centuries, depending on which group you're looking at, that would need to vote in order to pass something, provided the ones above all voted um, one way. And I think this is probably helpful for listeners then, as we think in our own day, um, even as we think of democracies or republics, if they've developed, 
if we think of in the in the English setting, the House of Lords, right, the more long-standing, moneyed, um, noble type of ruling family class, and even as America was set up, the notion of the Senate kind of being the longer-serving um, senators, probably coming from more of an elite. Um, and in in our modern setting, I think, and this would be the case with the House of Commons and with our own House of Representatives, we tend to move from the the lower representative up, right? So something's going to go through the House of Representatives before it goes to Senate. Mm-hmm. So to understand that that difference as well, this is very much, even though it's a republic, we use that term, it's very much top down. This is not as if the move to Caesar is now somehow a move away from the people having power. Um, this is going to be a move from some, I don't, oligarchy is probably not a fair term there maybe necessarily, but it has oligarchic tendencies maybe? Yeah, I I think aristocratic republic is probably accurate, right? So it is indeed a republic and you still have to cast votes in groups and there are checks and there are balances. So the Senate doesn't vote at all. These are just the wealthiest men above a certain age and they have influence in the sense that they advise the bodies that vote, but they don't technically make any laws. The law breaking or the law making body, the primary one, is the Comitia Centuriata, where these centuries are from, and that doesn't have a, I don't think anyway, has a real good equivalent in modern context. And then there's another body called the Concilium Plebis or the Council of the Plebs, and the Plebs are uh, this sort of lower class, non pedigreed people, right? They could be exceptionally wealthy, but they're not. The Julii are a member of the Um, pedigreed group, which are called the patricians. And that group voted a little bit differently. And that would be, I think, a little bit closer parallel to like the House of Commons or the House of Representatives, because they're supposed to represent the non-aristocratic portion of the, the whole empire. And even though, by the way, we're talking about the republic, we're talking about the republic as a form of government, it's still an empire, right? They're right. still controlling lots of different peoples. So it can get a little bit complicated there too when you're trying to figure out what, you know, what, what period are we looking at and what do we mean by this? So I think aristocratic republic is probably accurate. Well, and I think that's helpful. And then the last thing, and then I'll, I'll let us get in more into Caesar himself and the movie makes is while we say then that the, the people, this is not a representative democracy or republic in a strict sense of how we would think of it today, it's not as if the people play no role. Um, these politicians do want to win over the people, um, and obviously Caesar will make an effort to do that. What would you say is the the role or the place, or what influence does the the? And we're talking in Italy, so obviously, as you mentioned, this is they're ruling an empire. They're not. This isn't going to be the same in Gaul or or elsewhere, but within the base, right at home, what a. I mean, no matter the, the situation, the people always have some power. Even the Nazis wanted to figure out where public opinion was. Um, how, what role did the people play uh, so far as being able to influence things or at least being taken into consideration? You know, you don't want to spark riots, stuff like that. Yeah, so this is actually a really complicated question for a lot of reasons. But one is, what do we mean by people, right? So you're you're very poor in the city and in the surrounding countryside are going to have virtually no voice at all. And in the Roman period, that actually was a pretty large 
portion, proportion of the population. And then you're going to have a group of sort of artisan-level people who have some influence, but probably their influence is pretty limited as well because they're going to need to be committed to their work. And which, artisans were mean, skilled trades, yeah. maybe people like today. Yep. And <clears throat> that group of people is not very likely to be able to participate regularly, right, in the political process because they're not going to have the ability to sort of get away from their jobs on a, on a regular basis. So then, really, when we start talking about the people who are engaged in the political process, we're talking about sort of at least moderately wealthy people, and then on up to the very, very rich. And so the senators want to influence this moderately wealthy group of people because this is the group that's likeliest to actually, you know, sort of change and even perception. In the, even in the American setting, probably the historical importance of the middle class, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so... They would want to, um, and they did very often, sort of make speeches to sort of sway them to a particular position. They campaigned. They they went out with their, you know, entourage and, you know, vote for me, and they shook hands. And when they didn't shake hands in the right context or in the right way, then they would be criticized for it, just like people today are criticized for, you know, not not playing the game the way you're supposed to. And so that very much would impact their success in either being elected or in passing a particular law or something like that. And then um, the other thing is that when we talk about you know riots or or whatever, it's hard to know how much of that was happening in a way that was sort of um, in a real context rather than in a um, sort of hyperbolic context. So, for example, in the Republic, um, Cicero would somewhat regularly talk about the mob and how the mob would do these terrible things and we needed to keep the mob in check. But it's really almost impossible to confirm that there was any such mob uh, rather than maybe like supporters or even like kind of a gang of rival politicians who supported, you know, somebody else. So... In that way, you know, what we imagine as the political process being democratic is still pretty narrow compared sure. to the common perception today. Absolutely. Um, so now maybe tell us, okay, what, is, what does Julius Caesar then do to, I don't know, manipulate <laughs> the situation, if that's the right mm -hmm. word or whatever, but how does he come in and, and take literally control mm -hmm. and make this, make himself eventually a dictator? Good. So I think one thing here that's really important is there were two major factions among the Roman politicians, the optimates and the populares. The populares would be populists, basically, who would make it their sort of goal to say, I'm, I'm for you, average Roman person, whatever they're imagining that average Roman person to be. And so then they would often sort of take on policies that would benefit the middle class or, or lower. So let's um, establish a grain dole. Let's establish um, land redistribution or something like this. So probably both Bernie and Trump could yeah. fall in that category. Yep. And Julius Caesar was one of these. And then um, his major rival, Pompey, was an optimate. And this idea was, look, we have um, a well-established aristocratic leadership, and we need to maintain that aristocratic leadership. If you appeal to the average person, you're appealing to the mob, and pretty soon things are going to fall apart. And um, they would actively resist any of this sort of 
thing that you might perceive as sort of a welfare state kind of idea, um, as well as um, broadening access to citizenship or broadening access to the political process in any way. And so obviously, I, I think maybe it's not obvious, but I think it would be obvious that the populares perspective was more popular among the Roman people, especially in this period where you have a lot of uncertainty and you would imagine that in an uncertain time, anyone who says, I can fix something for you and I will fix something for you if you just elect me into office, that person is very likely going to get a lot of support and that support might be um, the kind that's going to basically mute the voice of the other side ultimately. And I think that's sort of the situation that Julius Caesar was in, and I think that's one of the places where we can find some parallels as well. Yeah, and I think um, if we're thinking of Pompeii, if you think of even with the, the two parties we have today, the the institutional, you know, kind of party elite probably would more align with, the um, you know, we have a way we do this and we have a system and um, you know, we need to kind of stick with that. And we've seen that in recent politics in America mm-hmm. versus, a, a you know, an ability to go beyond that to the people. What um, you, you give these four reasons, and if you want to jump into them now, you can. Or, but if you want to preface it anymore, that's fine, too. What makes this a time? I mean, I'm guessing a part of it is just Caesar himself. But what makes this a time that's ripe for a Caesar to be able to make the kind of moves he makes? Sure. So I think one of the things that is really important for that is to go back to the sort of series of civil wars and discontent and various other ways in which society was pretty destabilized at this point. So um, just to kind of contextualize the period just before Julius Caesar becomes dictator, um, there were four civil wars within a 50-year period, if you count the... um, the social wars, which is the one I was talking about between Latin uh, Romans and others in Italy. And so these civil wars were all pretty um, dramatic, right? And they many of them happened in the city of Rome, or there were at least some parts of the battles that took place in the city of Rome. So you can imagine that, that people were living in some fairly traumatic situations. They were looking for someone to stabilize. They were looking for someone who was strong uh, because they didn't want to be in the middle of this anymore. So the first civil war uh, happened uh, of, of the ones that, that were between Roman leaders, right, happened in 88 B.C., and this is when Sulla, the guy who becomes dictator before Julius Caesar, goes to war against his um, co-consul, a guy named Marius, who had dramatically sort of reshaped the military, which is pretty important um, because that's kind of what allows for these civil wars to take place. And, and I can come back to that in a little bit. And then there's a second civil war that Sulla initiates. And then there's a civil war that Caesar initiates. Um, And then following that, there are going to be two civil wars to finally end the Republic and the dictatorship altogether and establish the empire, which of which um, Augustus Caesar, uh, his adopted grandnephew, will be then emperor. Yeah. And just to jump in there, I think that's something that's important for people to understand, too, is when you have these important families um and this is something that comes up in um theology even with 
when Paul uses the picture of adoption, for instance, in the scriptures, um, it wasn't uncommon, or correct me if I'm wrong, to have where you have like a Julius Caesar who recognizes who will become Caesar Augustus, what Octavius, right, um, as um, someone that would be good to be aligned with and have in the family. Um, this became an important way for people to move upward, but also for families to maintain power right. um, through taking people into their care. Is that, I mean, that's fair to say as well? Or Yeah, yeah. And a lot of these adoptions, these these are really truly like political or economic adoptions, and they're happening with adults, right. children, not um you know, not adoption in the way that, that we're accustomed to it. And it would be in the instance that I don't have an heir and Julius Caesar didn't. And right. so how do I make sure that, yeah, my wealth stays within my family line and there's somebody who's going to take up whatever um, responsibilities I've established and that I want to maintain, you know, or that I want to have continue to be connected with our family line. And so when Julius Caesar adopted Octavius, he actually did it in his will. So Octavius didn't even know that this was happening until it was done. Um, and then he, once he received news of uh, Julius Caesar's death and then the will, he came back. And then that's when he discovered he had been um, adopted, or at least it seems like he didn't know. And I think that's pretty fair to say. And then he decided, yeah, he's going he's gonna to accept all of the responsibilities that Julius Caesar had laid out for him in the will. What um, maybe, because I think the military aspect is important and, and interesting. Um, and, you know, we, we have kind of unique in history over the last few hundred years I mean, part of this comes out of the the growth of absolute monarchy in the West and things like that, too, of there's not multiple standing armies in America, and there's not multiple politicians who can just call an army. Um, But obviously, the military was very important to the Roman state. Um, What is uh, the connection to having an army, military might, um, the military as it related to the Roman state Mm -hmm. in all of this? So legally... The army is a state army, and legally, at least in the early period of the Republic, there were only two people who could um, basically lead an army, and these were consuls, and those consuls were generals, but also the head political leaders of the state. So, for example, in the United States, our president is also commander-in-chief. It kind of comes from that tradition. Over time, as it grows, right, more people get this office of consul, but they're acting in sort of a sub, or this, a proconsul. They're acting in sort of a subcategory, and so there are still two consuls, and it's these consuls who are responsible officially for directing the military. And so the military is officially the states. What happens that um, and with Marius is he's fighting a war in North Africa, and he claims he doesn't have enough soldiers to be effective and he is not given any reinforcements and so then he decides that he will raise a volunteer army and pay them out of his own pocket this is the turning point because while it's effective in getting people serving in the military and that was there there are debates about whether there's actually a shortage of soldiers or not but certainly the perception is there right and so if then there was a short a can't say it now a shortage of soldiers then um, what he does is beneficial for Rome because it, it, it engages more people. But on the other hand, it means they're loyal to their general. They're not loyal to the state. And so it's that situation that's problematic. So kind of, you know, you were saying 
the United States is is interesting, and and most of Western, um, you know, the Western states are interesting in that you have armies that are loyal to the state, and only a very small number of people can declare war. That was true in Rome, but there was this major shift, and and that really destabilized things. Well, and that that will play into I, I believe, and you can correct me, with Pompey and with Crassus as well. Mm-hmm. They're gonna have. They're to be a political player. You're gonna have to have some connection to the military or the army. Yeah. Um, so we have the situation where you have competing forces and competing loyalties, and then you. So we've talked a little bit about precedent, um, and I think this kind of gets a little bit at personality too with competing loyalties. Mm-hmm. Um, economic uncertainty. Maybe we can get to. Um, I think that's always extremely important. And I, I think just the things you've hit on already, if you look historically, a, a time of destabilization, people are going to tend to want stability, whatever the price. But what would uh, some of the, you, you've hit on a little bit, the optimists and the, the um, populares. When we talk of polarization, what exactly do you mean by the increase of polarization? Is it just between being a populist and appealing to the established elite or are there other dynamics playing in? So there is, it seems, a pretty sharp division between the political platforms of both of these groups and the groups that they're appealing to, and they will each gain a pretty solid following. And as they gain that following, the people who are supportive of whatever position, um, popularis or optimates, are generally completely rejecting the other side, right? So and would it you be fair to say, say they're, de- they're developing bases? They're developing bases, then. and you could also, for the most part, though again, not to the full extent that we would be thinking of it now, divide them along sort of conservative liberal lines. Conservative would be optimists, liberal would be popularis. But again, it's not going to go as far down this sort of democratic ideal or democratic structure in either case as we're accustomed to thinking about it now. So if we go to the, the economic uncertainty then um what is uncertain about the the economy i suppose and how is that factoring into the developments that we're looking at now good so this is another spot where there's a lot of debate and so the traditional line is there's a shortage of soldiers there's also a shortage of people who are able to um work the land in the italian countryside because um, and there's a connection between those two. And the connection is that in order to be a soldier, you have to earn, own a certain amount of property. And after the Punic Wars, which occurred in the um, third century, um, second and third century BC, after those wars, um, there was potentially some level of depopulation, maybe about 30% or so is one of the numbers that's given. But again, it's totally debatable. And then there was also this process of wealthy landowners buying out smaller landowners and consolidating their property, um, sometimes you know, offering some level of protection, sometimes not, maybe renting the property back out to the persons that they purchased it from, whatever. And so as this land becomes um, sort of monopolized by the very wealthiest, then there aren't as many people who are eligible to serve in the army. And also, they're probably making less money than they would have in other circumstances because now they're no longer reaping the full benefits of whatever it is that they're doing. It's always a cut that's going to go back to somebody else. Um, 
And then there are probably some other layers to that as well. The city of Rome itself is massive at this point. It's um, one of only, I think, three cities um, in this time period that either met or exceeded uh, a million people. The other two were in China. And between Rome and sort of early modern London, there was never a city that big in the West. So this is a also another piece of the the puzzle, right, is what is this massive city? What kind of pressure is that putting on people economically? Well, and I think that, and I don't, the point of this is not to make demographic or par, strict parallels to today, but I think for people to identify with that, I mean, we see that throughout history as well, demographic decline and kind of the centralization of the economy, if we can speak of it that way, maybe it becomes more corporate, we might think of it today. Sure. Um, people in the Midwest are probably very familiar with kind of the family farm going away and in an industrial farm where owned by people um, and then that's farmed out the labor for that is um, no pun intended um, but uh, I mean well you think of even with the tutors in England and the issues over enclosure mm-hmm. um, that will take place so you have um, do you think this economic um, the feel of economic crisis, is this something that is from top to bottom people are feeling? Or do you think it's more um, the economic crisis is hitting that artisanal class and then the, the general population more that we were talking about earlier? Yeah, my sense would be that it is affecting the sort of more common person a lot more than it's affecting the rich. Um, and we have a fair amount of evidence that the rich were exceptionally rich, I mean, in, in ways that are almost unimaginable. And as they became richer, right, it's not a zero-sum game, but that's certainly the way it played out. You know, there the gap between rich and poor grew larger. And and so you can imagine that there's just a lot more, um, a, a larger amount of sort of dissatisfaction with politicians and with economic situations. Even if, even if things aren't actually worse, they might be perceived as worse because it's much clearer just how sharply divided. And I think we see that, you know, in the 20th and 21st century for sure too, where there's many metrics people would look at and say, well, in general, it's gotten better for everyone. Um, but then you'll have the questions that arise of, well, has everyone kept pace, mm-hmm. <clears throat> right? Uh, what? Um, so Caesar becomes dictator. He becomes a uh, perpetual dictator, right? This is going to be an ongoing right. position he holds. Um, Caesar's life will be cut short. Many people are familiar with, with this. Um, what's going to lead to his assassination? What, what, what are the powers behind that? So Julius Caesar was voted several forms of a dictatorship, and they increasingly became sort of more, um, I can't think of a, a good word. It's not a hard one to think of, but basically the, the powers he, were gi- he was given were expanded, right, every time. So he's given the dictatorship for two years, and then he's given it for five years, and then he's given it for 10 years, and then he's giving, given it for life. And it was this life thing that seems to have tipped the scales. And we have lots of little anecdotes um, of things Caesar did that were really just politically unwise, where he accepted honors that he probably shouldn't have accepted, where he allowed... um, So there's this one famous story um, that Appian gives us where um, some people had come to Julius Caesar and, and tried to put a crown or a laurel wreath on his head, and he rejected it. 
but then they ran out and put them on his statues, and that was perceived of as basically the same thing as having it put on his head, because in the Roman um, political context and, and all of this, a statue was um, sort of a, another embodiment of a person. And so if he's allowing this crown to be placed on the heads of his likeness, then he's essentially allowing it to be placed on his own head. And then there are other situations where he just behaves poorly in front of the Senate. And so, you know, all these things as a collective just really infuriate his colleagues because he's clearly, from their perspective, trying to take sole power. So this will be... um the assassination will be because of discontent among the elites, not necessarily popular discontent. No, it's only senators who participate in his execution. And then you, you get to the move to empire, and maybe as we round things uh, round things out a bit, what um or well, I guess what I'm getting at is that we get to we're going to see a move to emperors and the decline of the republic as a whole. What what keeps um, he's assassinated? Why isn't there just a return to the republic and um, let's go back to the old way of doing stuff and a stable republic? What keeps that from being possible, or why doesn't it happen? Why is Caesar Augustus going to be Caesar Augustus? I suppose. Sure. Well, I think a lot of what we've been talking about is sort of the the impetus for that. You're just too far gone, (laughs) and there's not an opportunity to go back. And I think the fact that Caesar was allowed to take on this no longer active role of dictator already indicates that it was too far gone. Um, and that he he was given that position, that he was voted all kinds of additional powers by the Senate, and... um, because he was awarded all of these different things, I think we already can see that the the republic, at least as it was, is not not ever going to to come back. And we also have these two political groups, the Popularis and the Optimates, really sharply divided at this point. And now it's going to be the assassins <laughs> versus Caesar's supporters. Um, and so you can imagine that that factional relationship or that factional tension was already, you know, was just exacerbated. So as far as in historical memory for Rome, um, now Caesar loses by being assassinated, right? That's an immediate loss for him. But long term, I mean, it's fair to say Caesar comes out on top. I mean, in in Roman memory, not Roman memory now, but then um, this image of Caesar becomes kind of the more enduring image of, of what Rome is. Yeah, I mean, because ultimately his side won, right? He personally um, lost, but his adopted right grandnephew is now, uh, adopted son, is now the emperor. And then for the next hundred or so years, every emperor is going to be in his line. Do you, would you see this then, is this in any way a meaningful victory or improvement for that middle and lower class we were talking about, or is this just a new elite? It's really hard to say. Um, I think mostly it's a new elite. There are some things that are improvements. Um, So, for example, um, Augustus Caesar Octavian 
restabilize, you know, makes the army a state army. He um, standardizes pay. He sort of uh, freezes the economy for a bit in order to try to help stabilize things. He reinforces some traditional ideas, and and <clears throat> that's pretty popular. So, in a certain way, it might be a little bit of a. a a relief anyway, but I don't know that it's necessarily changing anything about the social structure, at least dramatically. And then you kind of have closing in here, and let's we're going to try not to, to pick on individuals um, to get in trouble here, but um, you have uh, implications for current events, and I think we've been kind of teasing that out a little bit as we've discussed things, and a lot of our listeners, you know, they, they hear Rome, and if you watch the History Channel, I'm, I mean, now it's mostly the Hitler and a- Alien Channel, but um, what a big picture, and maybe not even just the American setting, but I, I do think the modern setting, but especially maybe the modern Western setting, because that's just what um, we're more rooted in personally. I mean, it's what we exist within. Um, it's what our institution is rooted in. It's what... Um, I mean, all three of us in this room professionally focus on the West uh, in our, uh, as our primary focus, not our, not our sole focus. What, uh, what would be some implications for current events? I think one implication is to really think about what things that seem like minor, relatively minor um, shifts might ultimately um, materialize in. And I, in Rome in particular, the beginning of the end was quite a long way back. And in retrospect, in hindsight, we can see pretty easily how those things line up. How clear was it to the Romans in that moment is a different story. And so taking some cues from that, I think, is important. I think the other thing is that as we become, uh, maybe we isn't the right word, but as people become sort of more entrenched in their perspectives and feel attacked and feel um, as if, you know, they're being threatened by some kind of, you know, outsiders, for example, with immigration, um, or insiders who don't hold their political or religious views. we're going to drain the swamp. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Any of those sorts of things. The more you feel threatened by those things and the more that fear is sort of stoked, I think, the more likely it is that these, these different perspective, sharply different perspectives become really entrenched. And the more likely it is, I think, that you might recircle back to an authoritative regime. And from my perspective, my um, it's rare. I can't think of any historical moment besides the one that we're currently in, which honestly isn't that long of a historical moment, that hasn't, that has, I mean, maintained any sort of republic or democratic structure for uh, you know, the duration of that particular um, political entity's structure. So Rome went through three phrases. It was a kingdom, and then it was a republic, and then it was empire. China occasionally sort of developed more um, democratic structures, but not for long, ever. And uh, that's true in other places as well. So I think we might do well to recognize that it is quite possible and probably likely that what we're comfortable with, that our democratic ideas, that our republican ideas are um, potentially uh, going to be superseded by some authoritative and authoritarian um, structures. And I, 
I think there's some evidence that that kind of thing is happening in places around the world. Um, Xi Jinping uh, being voted uh, or having the constitution amended so he can be president for life. Um, Erdogan doing a similar thing. Uh, and, you know, there are lots of other examples. And I, I think it's really worth paying attention to. Well, and then, and then also that it'll probably be the people who give it up, right? right? Mm-hmm. And, and it may be incremental, it may be something small, um, but that, that it's not like it's going to be a civil, bloody civil war. Right. Yeah, it could be, but it may not be, right? And it might be a series of, of wars or a series of, of events. But I think when you say that the people give it up, or allow in it exchange to happen. For, yeah. yeah, in exchange for some idea of certainty, even though that certainty is, you know, even though what somebody promises us, if they say, like, I'm going to fix X, and you can count on me. I'm the only one who can do it. I'll make it great. Don't don't you worry. I got it under control. In a situation where people are already uncertain, that sounds really good. But it is not very likely that that person can actually do the thing that he or she is claiming to do, except with authoritative power. Yeah, and I think, um, and I this I think could there could be a follow up episode on this that could be a lot of parallels that we unpack too, but I think what you got at is, is very helpful and, and important. And I think, you know, even Plato predicted this long before mm-hmm. how unstable the system, a system like what we have or what the West has had in many places, um, just it, what an anomaly it is in human history and the um, inclination of people towards demagoguery and um, a willingness to trade um, freedom, uh, uh, responsibility for stability or security. I mean, you get a, the Grand Inquisitor from Dostoevsky's the, the Brothers K. I mean, this is the argument the Inquisitor is, is making of right. why the people are willing to trade even Jesus as Jesus for a church that promises, you know, bread and security. And I think uh, it's helpful to see you know, as well as uh, an historian, one of the first things that we learn in my PhD is in history, too, is, you know, history does not repeat itself, strictly speaking, right? right Rome never. was Rome. O- neither Obama nor Trump are Caesar. Um, and you'll get people from various sides that will make accusations about both. Yet, um, history is instructive. And mm-hmm. um, and people, for all that we have, and we began with the free-for-all on stuffed crust pizza and um, Velcro or cell phones or Internet, as much as we might have new technologies, people at their core and common human impulses don't change as much as we think. And I think mm-hmm. you've mentioned with China and with Erdogan, I think with Turkey is really fascinating and how that's played out with the EU and even the tensions within the EU right now. Um, you have places like Hungary, Austria that are having big questions like this that have developed. In many ways, the 20th century was the story of these inherent tensions. You know, people look at... Uh, um, Nazism and say, well, how could Nazism develop? Well, Nazism was in the works for quite some time, and it's not like the Weimar Republic fell in a day. Um, and so I think there are very helpful and instructive things for us to consider with that. And I think just if I can briefly repeat the four, hopefully as our listeners now having listened to it and keep them in mind, is, is first, A, historical precedence, and I think 
even in the American setting, we already have all sorts of precedents for, um, well, and even, uh, we, we need to do an episode on this, um, but even um, the balancing of the three branches and the changing roles of the three branches of government that we've seen in our own time, um, executive orders, how legislative should a court be, um, what should be the role of Congress. Or maybe a small one, the executive, uh, something from the executive branch writing legislation for for the legislature. I mean, that is a, that's a shift in power that's, right. that's very important. And, and the increase in lobbying um, to where many legislators aren't writing any legislation themselves. They're being given things from lobbyists on the left and the right um, that then is being pushed through. And, and this is not to pick on Reagan, but a lot of this exploded uh, in the Reagan years. Um, and then economic uncertainty. I mean, if there's any anything where any place where there's parallels, I mean, we, we talk about trade wars today, um, extreme political polarization. Uh, welcome to Twitter. And uh, it would be interesting if Caesar had Twitter, how he would have used it. Um, and then finally, personality. I, I think it's hard to find an election in American history where personality wasn't a driving force behind the candidacy of a person. Um, I'm going to stop talking about anything for now, and I think Sheena will give you the last word, and then Mike's going to remind you that you have to say take us out at the end because um, he's got the sheet of paper over there. Um, but any concluding thoughts you have, Sheena? Um, I guess not really. I, I guess oh, I take that back. One thing. So personality we didn't talk much about, and in a certain way that's okay because I kind of want to downplay that just a bit. You certainly have to have an individual who's going to take advantage of the situations that are there and who knows, you know, sort of what's going on and they're, they're going to pick up on those cues and they're going to use them. But I also think that personality alone is not at all sufficient. We're not talking about just great men. We're talking about whole societies that are, you know, sort of precarious. Great men with systems, yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. Well, good. Uh, Sheena, we'll have you back again. We got a list of stuff that uh, we want to, we've been bugging her to come on. And uh, there's a lot of topics that she can talk on. Um, and so we will have you on again, of course, if you're willing to. Um, as we look back in history, though, and, and then try to bring it. Mike, I want to interrupt just briefly. Um, Sheena, our, our meme wall and picture uh, decorations have been growing. Do you have a favorite that stands out to you? Just, I would say we now have probably at least 40 things on the wall. Um, anyone that stands out as a favorite. We need to start asking guests this. As a favorite? Yeah. I don't know that any of them stand out necessarily as a favorite, as in like the thing I like the most. Or most intriguing. But the one that is most obvious that stands out to me is the the one that's immediately behind me Trump with two men riding shirtless on a horse. Yeah, that's my favorite. Yeah. It... it there's something about the placement that makes it really obvious, <laughs> and then it's also just a little uncomfortable. Uh, Wade and I were going to get one um, horseback um, with our shirts off and get a picture, but <laughs> we decided that, that would horse. be a little that would be um, that would be a little egotistical. Couldn't you just so superimpose your faces <laughs> on this one, and <laughs> we can see what Ben can do. We can see what Ben can do. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, we'll save the jokes from there. Um, so anyway, as we look back in history and then try to apply it to our own time, it can be a very um, disconcerting thing to kind of look at and say, well, there's all these different problems. And um, if we haven't been able as humanity to fix them now, um, what hope do we have? And I think the freedom of the gospel allows us to not only just kind of chill out once in a while, but also the freedom to kind of think clearly and not 
try to say or be convinced that this one time, this one event, this one policy um, is going to change the world and everything's going to fall apart. That kind of fear mongering we can kind of be free from because we have a God of history um, who entered history and who has taken us to eternity. And so that allows us to do what, Sheena? Let the bird fly. Every evening when the sun goes down, get in my party and I begin to cry. I don't care what the people are thinking. I'm not drunk, I'm just a drink. I set them up, another round. I set them up, another round. I set them up, another round. One more round won't get me down.